produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. Welcome to Kind World. I'm Yasmin Amr. And I'm Andrea Aswahe. Healthcare workers are in the spotlight these days and getting recognized for the sacrifices they're making during the pandemic. But for so many of them, that recognition is long overdue. On our show, we've had the chance to speak to doctors, nurses, therapists, and other medical professionals over the years who've gone above and beyond for their patients and showed them kindness during their hardest days. And today, we want to share three of our favorite Kind World stories about healthcare workers. These are stories from our archives that showcase just how powerful kindness in the medical field can be. Let's start with a 2015 story about how a doctor, her young patient, and his family created an inspiring connection during the darkest of times. Here's the story. She remembers it all. One night I was giving my son Nick a bath. As he turned his head, I noticed the lump on him. It kind of felt like swollen glands, but it was big. First thing the next morning, we were at the doctor's. He said he has cancer. I just remember like falling to the floor crying. You know, he's six years old. And I said, we need to get him to Boston. We had gotten a call from the ambulance transport that he was coming. I laid on the stretcher and then they put him on top of me and belted us in. I remember pacing the floor before he arrived. They opened the doors and took the stretcher out. I mean, to me, it felt like there was like 100 people standing there. And I remember Melody being there, and I remember her just comforting me as we got off of the ambulance. I didn't realize who she was, but I just remembered thinking, all right, I'm glad that she's with me. My name is Rosemary Jensen. My name's Melody Cunningham. Melody was Nick's oncologist. Nicholas, was he had a hard time adjusting to people, and Melody, he never did. He really didn't talk a whole lot at first. I think he was just angry and afraid, but he loved practical jokes, and I am more than happy to be the recipient of practical jokes. So he would put a whoopee cushion in the chair and then, of course, sit down and... (laughs) Nick would just roar with laughter over and over and over and just swipe the heart right out of your chest. I was Nick's doctor for two and a half years. But at that point, she went to a different department. Even though she wasn't his doctor, she was still involved. He loved seeing her. Three and a half years, he had 23 surgeries. When he said to us, you know, Mom, can I, am I going to die? I didn't say no. I said, I don't know. And Nick was really sick at that point, and Melody came to the house which is like a two-hour drive from her house to my house. You don't see doctors doing that. Nicholas was all about the Army. She had brought down her dad's purple heart, and Nicholas was just like in awe of it. I remember bringing the purple heart out and talking about what it meant and that my father died in a car accident when I was actually Nick's age. He sort of pondered that, And then after I left, I know Rose talked to me about the fact that he seemed sort of uplifted and strengthened. And so, though he never 
said the words and asked about dying, I think in that moment we had that talk about him dying. One morning, his breathing was really heavy. His nurse came in and she said, is there anybody you want me to call? And I said, I need to call Melody. Rose called me. It was like 5.30 in the morning. Absolutely no question in my mind that I was going to be there. It was her day off. She didn't have to be there. She wasn't his doctor, but she was there. We were laying in the bed pretty much the whole day, and I remember her just, like, holding my ankle. Charlie, my husband, was on one side, I was on the other, and she was behind me. She was there the whole day. She didn't move. I truly believe that when you can't cure, you can always heal um, or try to heal simply by our presence. And often that presence is a silent presence. And then when I felt like they needed it lightened, I would tell stories. We laughed because they were quintessential Nick stories. And then, of course, we cried. For many, many, many hours, 15 or 18 hours, these breaths were continuous. And then they slowed. And then they stopped. I remember laying in bed with them, just holding them, and just waiting for that next breath to come. But it didn't come. And then I remember hearing Melody say, he's gone, Rose. And I knew he was gone. I just didn't want it. I didn't want him to be. That reality comes in, I think, like a tsunami. The funeral parlor came to get him. And she helped me dress him. She walked out with him. The constant communication with Melody helps me remember Nick and brings back all of the joys I had with him. I've been living down in Memphis for the last nine years. But we still stayed in touch. Even after all these years later, like, I'll be talking to her and she'll tell me a funny story that I forgot. He used to roll a blade around the hospital all the time. Over the loudspeaker, we had to be like, Nicholas Jensen, get back to your room or you're grounded. (laughs) She remembers it all. When I care for a family, I'm there for the duration. That story was produced by Erica Lance. Up next, a story about the people who work alongside doctors, people like therapists and assistants, and how beneficial their help can be to families who are suffering. Here's our 2018 story, Aubrey's Songs. Luanda Rosenberger waited 39 years to have her first baby. After one month of marriage and lots of prayers and careful planning, Luanda found out she was pregnant. She and her husband Jason were ecstatic. 
We started to buy things once a month and save up for her arrival. Little did we know God had another plan. Luanda was hospitalized just five months into her pregnancy. Her baby wasn't growing normally. Her placenta wasn't receiving enough blood. Doctors couldn't pinpoint what was wrong, so they insisted on monitoring her around the clock. Luanda's baby girl was born almost three months early, weighing just under two pounds. Doctors packed the delivery room, hoping to get a glimpse of the baby with a mysterious diagnosis. So they did not know what to expect. Um, And as you can imagine, they expected the worst and they prepared us for the worst. Aubrey Lynn Rosenberger was diagnosed with a chromosomal disorder called partial trisomy 15. It's so rare, there's only been 10 reported cases in the last 20 years worldwide. The disorder can cause physical defects, organ abnormalities, and slow development. Most babies with this diagnosis die before birth. Once I delivered the baby, uh, we were also asked if we wanted to continue care. And we said, of course. They had given her a 20% chance of survival. Despite the frightening odds, Aubrey lived. She was immediately whisked away to the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, or NICU. Nearly four hours later, Lawanda finally met her baby girl. When I laid eyes on her through this incubator, I was able to touch her um, and just touch her little finger and instantly the emotions took over and I began to wail and cry, you know, because it's this precious little baby laying in this, you know, incubator and I can't hold her. It was joyous knowing that she had survived. Aubrey's condition was constantly in flux. Her parents were by her side every day, all day, even when Aubrey was transferred to a specialty NICU. But life outside the hospital didn't stop. Soon, Lawanda had to return to her marketing job. I did not want to leave this one-pound baby in the NICU in anyone's care. You know, I felt like as a mom, that's my responsibility to take my baby home and be able to care for my baby. So it was excruciating. She felt the need to be there constantly. That's Jason, Lawanda's husband. Even though, you know, in the early stages, we couldn't do anything. I mean, there's a helplessness feeling that you get, you know, when you're in that situation. But one of Aubrey's therapists had a way to reduce that sense of helplessness. And her idea had nothing to do with medicine or machinery. My name is Hannah Ivy Bush. Hannah is a music therapist who wanted to use her passion for music to help Luanda and Jason. So she got them into a makeshift studio to record their voices on CDs, which would then be played for Aubrey when they had to be away from the hospital. It's part of our culture to sing to babies and to read books to our children. Luanda sang the ABCs. She read inspirational books. And she recorded a song she'd written for Aubrey. I love you, Aubrey, yes I do. I love you, Aubrey, I really love you. I love you, When the nurses played the recording for Aubrey when Lawanda and Jason were away, 
Aubrey seemed to respond. Aubrey always opens her eyes when you start playing the CD. She'll turn towards the sound of her mother's voice. And there are times that she begins to smile. And it's really beautiful to get to watch her response to her mother. Because I also get to provide live music to her. And she doesn't like me as much as her mother's voice. I can tell a difference. Hannah's idea to record parents' voices at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta at Scottish Rite grew into a program she calls Little Lullabies. You can watch the patient's vital signs improve while they're listening. And when we tell parents, hey, we played this CD and your child's heart rate went down or their breathing improved, that gives them that power back as a parent, a little bit of that control back as a parent that they are caring for their child and that they are still comforting their child. It's helping us knowing that we're not feeling helpless anymore. We're actually contributing to the development of our little baby. Hannah's program has deeply touched the lives of families facing serious challenges. And hospitals around the country are taking notice. And thanks to Hannah, Lawanda and Jason's difficult journey has become so much easier. They say little lullabies brought them closer as a family at a time when bonding with their baby seemed impossible. We're just so happy and thankful that this little baby that they said had 0% chance to live has defied every single odd, and she is not only surviving, but she is thriving. Now, Aubrey likes to babble and kick along to the music made just for her. That story was produced by me, Andrea Aswahe. We've got one more story for you after the break. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Kind World. I'm Yasmeen Amr. Our last story today is one of my favorites. It's about finding the strength and courage to reach out and to forgive, not just others, but ourselves too. Here's our 2017 story, The Patient. It was 1999, and Dr. Rick Van Pelt was an anesthesiologist in his mid-30s when he met a patient named Linda Kenny. Basically a, a very healthy young woman, a mother of three, Really, her only medical problem being her feet. The woman was born with club feet, each foot twisted out of shape, and this would be surgery number 20. It was a straightforward ankle replacement, and Rick wanted to use a local anesthetic, a nerve block injected behind the knee, his specialty. But the woman said she'd had bad experiences with local anesthetics before. She was initially very resistant, and I said, you know, this is something we do all the time. So the 37-year-old patient agreed, and Rick found the nerve and injected the nerve block. That's when the patient started acting strange. 
squirming in the bed, kind of moving irregularly and talking nonsensibly. There were just words coming out and, and sounds coming out that were incoherent. And within probably seconds of that, her whole body started to convulse. The anesthetic Rick injected had gotten into the bloodstream, which was potentially fatal. It happened so fast, um, you know, all of a sudden she was just motionless in the bed. Her heart just stopped. By then, a team surrounded the bed. She was getting shocked. She was being ventilated. She was getting medications, and her heart rate wasn't coming back. We're doing everything we can, and we're not getting her back, and this is really bad. Um, you know, she could die. What did I just do? They rushed her to a cardiac suite across the hall, cracked open her chest, and pumped her heart by hand. Rick just watched, while his colleagues inched away as though he were toxic, avoiding his eyes. No one would talk to him. Finally, they got a heartbeat, and the only question was brain damage. Rick went to talk to the patient's husband. He found him in the waiting room, pacing. I opened the door, and he stopped. He looked at me, and just came at me, screaming. What did you just do to my wife? And, you know, like he was just going to beat the crap out of me. A doctor stepped between them, and then there was nothing left for Rick to do but go home. When I first woke up, I had tubes coming from everywhere. When Linda Kenny opened her eyes, she didn't have brain damage. She did have a scar, broken ribs, and a terrified family. My husband was crying. I couldn't even comprehend what was going on. It would take her quite some time to recover from her open-heart surgery, but even greater was the emotional toll. She didn't realize it until the death of a friend's 13-year-old daughter. I felt so guilty. How come I got to live and she didn't? That's when I started to kind of fall apart. That's when it all started to come apart. Linda struggled to cope. She didn't know that the doctor who'd given her that nerve block was struggling too. I was sort of in this state of total mental chaos. You know, I had this knot in my stomach that I was walking around with. No one would talk to Rick about what happened, partly from fear of being subpoenaed. So he hid his emotions. Until he just couldn't anymore. There was this incredible peace that had all of a sudden come through. I'm going to get sued, but I'm going to do the right thing. Against all advice, Rick wrote Linda a letter. He said he was sorry, that he didn't expect a response, but he was there if she wanted to talk. Linda wasn't ready. Her friends were encouraging her to sue, but her mind was elsewhere. And I kept thinking, if I feel this bad, how must he be feeling? He held the needle that day. Rick had moved from Boston to Seattle by the time he got the call from Linda six months later. How are you feeling, Linda asked, the first person to ask him that. And she really, I think, said, I forgive you for, for what happened. <laughs> it was like the 800-pound gorilla jumped off my back. You know, all of a sudden I was, I was free. I had my life back. And finally, he could forgive himself. When Rick moved back to Boston, they got coffee. And Linda explained her side of the story, how she'd felt cut off from hospital communication, how no one would talk to her either. 
they'd both been isolated. All of a sudden, the issue escalated from the two of us to this is just wrong. We're going to take this on. Um, I don't know how, but, you know, this is bigger than the two of us. Linda told Rick that she wanted to start an organization that focused on the effects of medical error. Their idea was that both patients and doctors needed more support after experiences like Linda's. They called it Medically Induced Trauma Support Services. Soon Rick and Linda were making the rounds at hospitals. After they gave their presentations, Linda remembers older doctors lining up to talk with her. All telling me they had a story. Medical errors they'd kept to themselves for years. Patients and clinicians alike started calling Linda for help. Over the past 15 years, she and Rick have piloted patient therapy groups and convinced hospitals across the country to develop peer support. They've seen real progress, but for Rick, the biggest change was personal. The years of training, the, the medical experience actually trained the compassion out of me. It just, over time, wore me down, and I was a good clinician, but I was not a person. I was not a human being, and I think this was really, I think it restored my humanity. That story was produced by Erica Lance. Thanks so much for listening to Kind World this week. We're hard at work on some upcoming episodes, so stay tuned for new stories dropping in your podcast feed every Tuesday. And you can always keep up with us on Instagram. We're at WBUR Kind World. Kind World is a production of WBUR, Boston's NPR station. Paul Vikas and Matt Reed do our sound design. Sophie Eisenberg is our WBUR fellow. Catherine Brewer is our managing producer and editor. And Iris Adler is our executive producer. I'm reporter and producer Yasmin Amr. And I'm reporter and producer Andrea Aswahe. We still want to hear from you. So if you've got a story of kindness to share with us, call us and leave us a voicemail. We're at 617 617- 353-6350. That's 617-353-6350. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.